Hey everybody and welcome to yet again another episode of Power Nap Podcast. Today's guest is Jeremy Brook and he's a longtime friend of mine, the only person I've ever wanted to take drum lessons from uh, because he's so damn good, knows what to ignore and knows what to focus on. Um, and as well as drumming, he's a great cook slash chef. Um, he's also an electrician, messes around with circuits, soldering irons, noises, and everything related to that, and also does a bunch of video work. Uh, you can check out his website at ionchef.com, and we're going to talk to him about a bunch of awesome shit. Here we go. time and time again they're fucking I'm always amazed with how big their heads are Charlie Cease met Robert Plant in Marfa and he's hanging out and it's like I just had to go say something to him it's fucking Robert Plant I know he ain't got shit to say but he goes up and he's like the guy's head is so fucking huge you literally don't know how his body supports it he looks uh, like a bobblehead and then he goes up oh you mean physically physically, physically just, huge head yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. like inflated no, no, no. ego like it's just Massive cranium. Well, that comes in a second, but no, yeah. So Charlie goes, man, you know, Mr. Plant, I just want to say you're a legend and I love your, everything you do and thank you so much for everything you've done. You're a badass. And Robert Plant goes, I know. Oh, Shakes oh, wow. his hand and walks away. Wow. He goes, it wasn't like he was being a total dick. It was yeah. like he was being a badass dick. And it wasn't at all, you know, aggressive towards me. It was just, I'm fucking Robert Plant. Yeah. Of course I am. Thank well, you. Well, imagine what that's like to be living on this planet and be Paul McCartney. Like that concept of like, I changed the entire musical landscape forever. Apparently he's he's pretty fucking cool. Paul Mercurio, that comedian again, mm-hmm. has a podcast, whatever, another comedian's podcast. And he runs into McCartney doing some gig in LA or something, runs backstage, maybe Letterman. And he runs across him and says, well, would you ever want to do the podcast? And Paul's like, yeah. And he goes, here's my number. And he's like, well, no, I mean, do you, I can have your agent's number. And he's like, no, you have my number now. I'll be ready for tomorrow. Here's, I've got two hours that it would be, I'd be available. We'll do it then. I'll call you when I'm free and we'll, we'll knock it out over the phone. I'm a busy guy, but will you work with me on there? And Yes, sir. Absolutely, yeah. Mr. McCartney. Yeah. I think I can facilitate that. And so, and he gets the call and he says, I missed the first fucking call. <laughs> I miss Paul McCartney's call. And he, he plays on stage. He played the, the recording, the voicemail. And it's fucking awesome. It's just like if you called me and were like, hey, bud, you know, I know you said you're going to pick me up at 7. Um, I know it's just me calling you. I'm sure you're on your way. So anyway, when you get a chance, call me back and I'll be free for the next half hour. Hopefully we can knock it out then and best of luck. He's like, holy fucking shit. What a good guy. Um, I saw him when he came to Austin oh, really? two years ago. Wow. Worth every fucking penny that I didn't pay. It was a gift. Best, <laughs> best show. He's the oldest dude that was 35 years old. He was he had more energy on stage than I do. It was phenomenal. The show was everything you'd want. He played Helter Skelter. He played Blackbird. He played Imagine. Uh, it was a really 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 good show. Band was incredible. Energy was phenomenal. He Dave Chappelle, 
couple of people I've seen recently have this really amazing. Hate to say it on stay on on recording. I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Aside from the whole rape thing, Bill Cosby. Um, they they all have provided this really unique experience of you didn't feel like you were watching a performance. You felt like you were hanging out with a friend. Yeah. They had there was no fourth wall. They were really personable. I felt like I was watching Paul McCartney's band rehearse. And he would come talk to you in Irwin Center, and you felt like he was talking to me. Same thing with Dave Chappelle. He just, he was so relaxed on stage, and there was a little bit of the initial heckling, and he addressed that, and then he just talked. And mm-hmm. he would go seamlessly into bits, and then just into talking. And that's what Cosby's known for, is that three, besides what he's now known for. But it was those <laughs> yeah. three, he would do a two and a half hour set, his comedy, and it would be amazing. It was, it was timeless. It would be great jokes, and then B.B. King did the same thing, where he'd play fucking awesome, you know, he played three hours when I saw him, and it was like half songs, half stories. Damn. Seamless. Yeah. Seamless. Same for when I saw Leon Russell at, at the Paramount. That was pretty good. Just, just him, his stage banter. Just stories in between songs and everything. They know how to keep you entertained. They know mm-hmm. how to keep a show going. And if they can't do that, they'll drug you and stick their dick in you. No, <laughs> Jesus. See that meme that was going around where it's a blurry picture of Bill Cosby? It says, if you, if you see this, it's too, too late. late. Yeah. Oh, God. Yep. Oh. Who's, one of, who's been one of my favorite stand-up comics lately uh, is Kyle Kinane. Yeah. He has, I've seen him a couple of times now, and the last time I saw him, and again, a a completely nice guy to talk to after the show, uh, I was like, that was all new material, man. Like, he's like, yeah, I got another special coming up, and it's like, that's, I can't remember the last time I saw a comic so close to the last time I saw them, and everything was completely new. Yeah. And he's got mm-hmm. such a great personality, and he's so affable, and uh, he's self-deprecating in a way that never gets into that kind of, you yeah. know, caustic kind of, you know, Doug Bill yeah. line mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of funny, but man, he was so good. He, um, I like him for that. He rides that line so good. Jackie Cation's a great female comedian, mm-hmm. and she, she'll say, um, you know, do you ever realize that watching comedy is like watching a parade of Asperger's and just variations of Asperger's victims and you're like yeah and it's it's the low point of comedy and I, I ride that line with what I like between half preaching half comedy where sometimes you go dude I get that you're sad and this is but this isn't jokes this is therapy that you're using yeah. on stage this is for you not for us and that's bullshit yeah. I'm here you're fucking here to entertain me not the other way around I'm not here to be your counselor and that's so often the case with the fucking 20 to 30 year old dudes coming, I smoke a lot of weed and I'm overweight and I'm unhealthy. Yeah. I don't have a girlfriend. Here are my jokes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, fucking great. Um, <laughs> but, um, nah, I lost the point anyway. Yeah. Well, I think, I guess to play like devil's advocate in that sense, I, I think I tend to resonate with almost that storytelling like Joey Diaz you know a lot of his stuff wasn't like punchline based right in a sense it was like stories just like holy crap this guy's life was just like all over the place and just him like making fun of it and just you know in in any other terms if it was on a therapist's office it's like why are you laughing at this there are horrific stories of like doing fucking bumps of cocaine with your cats and shit and you and your cats have addiction problems (laughs) yeah they're not funny stories that are fucking hilarious 
it's com- it's character based comedy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good. Oh, that's why it. I love that uh, that Comedy Central series that started on YouTube and actually went to air. That this is not happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was great because yeah. you get to have all these guys tell these amazing like you know T J Miller is funny to just listen to mm-hmm. no matter what. But yeah, Joey Diaz and Big J Okerson, like that's that's a great train wreck that you get to watch that isn't necessarily you know jokes it's just unbelievable shit that also happens to be really funny I want to be something about being a comedian feels so much better than being a musician and the ability I love the the way the comedians talk about hanging out with each other and just busting balls mm-hmm. that's all you fucking do is just bust balls I was like, that's just who I am I love yeah. busting balls coming from a place of love earlier today my roommate Seth we were watching he, he was a big fan of Canaan and Joe DeRosa you know that mm-hmm. guy very self-deprecating so he we look at some YouTube video film shot it's Kurt Brandelier uh, Joe DeRosa Kyle Canaan a couple other people hanging out on tour and the setup is they're in they're in like Montreal I guess for just for laughs and they all went and had good French food and Joe DeRosa's like fuck your nice food and he holds off and he doesn't eat and then they're going to McDonald's so he can get his burger afterwards, right? And he's in there ordering his burger and the other comedians are outside and Kanane goes, all right, $100 to who? whoever can prevent Jerosa from eating this fucking food. We're not letting him take a bite of that fucking food. God. And that's the setup. And then the, the fucking phone video goes from there and it's two minutes. And DeRosa comes out and he's and fucking instantly just Kanane just smacks the fucking (laughs) fries from his hands. Aggressive as shit. (laughs) And DeRosa just, yep, of course. I'm fucking hanging out with comedians. Of course my fucking food's in the gutter now. And then he's he manages his fucking Big Mac or whatever, he's still in the wrapper. So just as he's about to grab that, someone else fucking stomps it on the ground. Kurt Brandler stomps it. And he just he just fucking that beautiful thing where he instantly gets past denial and he's like, yep, of course, accept yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm accepting my loss and it's done and I fucking hate all you. This, yeah. is, this is the life that I chose. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking, oh, I wanted to be there. Getting my burger smashed. <laughs> I love that shit. And uh, yeah, Kanane, DeRosa. DeRosa was great. DeRosa was one of the guys. Cap City, free tickets, come. And we are like, cool, let's go check him out. Love him. Big fan from here on out. Him and Burr not didn't grow up together, but he used to live with in Burr's apartment. Okay. Yeah. When the, as Burr was moving from New York, so there's some good stories there. They had a podcast together called Uninformed, mm-hmm. where it was strong viewpoints and no information. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. Uh, and this is before Burr's podcast, or right at the same time when he starts his thing. This is like radio. This was serious radio. This is like before. Uh, yeah. Okay. Even, even before really. podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's definitely worth downloading and checking out. Uninformed, they're great. They have a cop on, and they ask, and the cop's phenomenal because he's like a retired guy. He's now the c- comedy seller, security guard, so he's got a great sense of humor. Oh, wow. And he's like, well, you know, looking the way you do, Bill, when you get pulled over, there's not much you can do. But da da da, and he's just like, well, what the fuck, da da da, asking good advice. Uh, they have, they have a psychologist come on and she starts like getting into making them uncomfortable and DeRosa's an adopted kid and Bill Burr's just a kid of the 70s that's got that chauvinistic weird thing he's grappling with and oh man yeah check out that podcast um and then I wanted to tie it in you know Bill Burr's a, a pretty good drummer for a comedian really the way he talks about drums at first he's self-deprecating he's like I'm not a fucking good drummer 
Yeah. But he's pretty decent. And he'll go the way he qualifies it. I'm not I'm like a good drummer for a comedian, but not a good drummer for a musician. Yeah, okay, fair enough. No, he'll he'll go there's this thing I want to go to in LA where it's just comedians and all they do is get up and they play music. They cover really? songs cuz you know. And so yeah, Bill Burr will go out and he'll dress like fucking the drummer for uh, Guns N' Roses and they did a couple Guns N' Roses tunes he went and did Motley Crue oh, wow. a couple months ago and I'm like fuck yeah, yeah that's I want to go check that out um, another thing uh, to, to relate to that you know Brody Stevens mm-hmm. yeah. Um, he, oh, yeah he does that I guess his show in, in LA a lot of times he'll open the show and he'll like he'll start out on the drum set okay. and then he'll just he'll start playing and then he'll like run through the audience and just like it's another like, character-based comedian, you know. Just, Enjoy it, you know. He was one of the best MCs I've ever had at Oddball. At, oh yeah, uh, Comedy Fest. That's right. And I had Jeff Ross the first year, and he sucked as an MC. He yeah. was all right, but he was too into his own material. I felt like, and his own material was pretty weak. It was like jokes about people with pimples and like you're fat, you're Jewish. Yeah, kind of the right. simple shit. But it worked. Light, light roasting. Yeah, you know, and um, and then Brody Stevens the following year was so good, and it was so fucking cheesy. It was almost you yeah. know, um, who are we talking about on the way in? Slick back hair, coughs a lot in the mic. Uh, Neil Hamburger. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he almost had that like fucking really kitschy style where you're like, really? Is this really what the fuck I'm listening to? And then you get past that and you just fucking start laughing. You, you just unbuckle the seatbelt and fucking go for the ride. Yeah. And and I remember having a great time. Like, it took me like 15 minutes to figure him out and then I was like, oh, you're fucking great. You're an MC. You're just coming in and doing dumb fucking shit, building up energy between performers and then getting yeah. on stage. It's perfect. It's what your job is. And Bill Burr on his podcast was like, dude, he fucking killed it. We were in the green room just cracking up. And he's like, do you know, you know what's going on right here? You're about to see comedians that have fucking made it, people. And I don't know if you guys appreciate this, but it's really hard as a comedian. We got bottled water backstage. We got fucking Coca-Cola. We even got Chex Mix, motherfuckers. This doesn't happen every time. And no one, no one in the audience is laughing, but all the comedians are cracking up because they're like, this is fucking dumb. There's this is a, silly, yeah. Yeah, there's a really good Joe Rogan podcast where they have Brody Stevens on. And thirty, like almost thirty minutes of it, are dedicated to them trying to figure out how gay percentage-wise Brody Stevens is, <laughs> and he gets so uncomfortable because like I'm, he's like I'm not gay, guys, you know. It's like, well, would you have sex with like a lady boy, you know? Like if it was offered, you know? Like he's like, I think you're about thirty. He's like, I'm not thirty percent, and it's like just back and forth for like thirty minutes. It's just like so brutal but good at the same time oh yeah he's definitely one of those people that I can see it's pretty easy to just if you're buddies of his just yeah. wind him up and watch him go because yeah. he's fucking neurotic yeah, yeah. I, I'm uh, working with a guy that owns a canning company and he's from Manhattan oh, uh, didn't own but ran a couple bunch of bars and cocktail manager and stuff and then one of his bars that he was a sommelier and was immediately upstairs of the comedy cellar it's like I would regularly like wait on Jerry Seinfeld, Wanda Sykes, Colin wow. Quinn, Dave Chappelle, a bunch of really great comedians, and got to have a good rapport with them, you know. And part of the job of a good waiter is to, you know, never be seen but always present, mm-hmm. and you know they'd appreciate that. And I just instantly like, well, I want to hear everything about all of them. Is Wanda Sykes a sassy black woman in real life? <laughs> he's like, absolutely. Yeah. And he's like, the good story about that is it's. Her and Colin Quinn and a bunch of other comedians are hanging out, and it's like late 90s. Colin Quinn has some really shitty MTV show. Um, I don't remember the fucking name of it, but it was 
he was he was talking shit about it and he was like I don't know what professional decisions that I'm making right now no one knows who the fuck I am I'm doing something that I don't enjoy and he's talking to Wanda and he's like well I mean and Wanda's like oh here let's you know let's test it out and she goes Come here. And he's like, yeah, Mr. Waiter, uh, do you know who I am? And she goes, he ain't no fucking waiter. That's the sommelier, first of all. And second of all, and do you know? And he goes, yeah, you're the dude from that shitty MTV show. Ah, and Colin oh. Quinn's like, see, exactly, man. This is fucking why. And they had a good rapport. And he's like, I'm just busting your balls, you know. And they all got along. But he's like, yeah, Colin Quinn, really nice. Jerry Seinfeld is literally who he is on the show. He, he would, Mr. Seinfeld, how was everything? You know that steak? A little salty. Well, <laughs> do you want me to take it back? Get you something else? No, it's not bad enough to take it back, but you asked, and I'm going to let you know. And the iced tea? Yeah, a little two cubes too many ice. You know? What? The, fucking, the dude has a vision. He's Steve Jobs. Yeah. He has a vision for everything. The story about Steve Jobs I heard that made me like him is he's dying, and he's in and out of consciousness or something, and a nurse is there, and he comes to on his deathbed, and he's like, nurse. This fucking color yellow that's on my little button to call you, it's a bullshit tone yellow. It's more canary yellow, and if you got rid of the pastel and made it more of a neon yellow, it'd be a lot more appealing. And she's like, dude, just fucking die. Like, what are you doing? But he couldn't stop. He was a perfectionist. That's amazing. And he had that vision. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Just like, you know, fucking Seinfeld. I'm a, he's obviously a phenomenal comedian, but the dude knows how to make iced tea really well, too, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Right. And he, you know, and my friend was like, don't get me wrong, he never crossed the line. He was never an asshole. He was never at all mean. He just responded to what I asked him, and he let me know. It, yeah. was, it was good, actually. It was great criticism to hear. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he is like that on the show. And you'll, wow. what you'll find is that comedians are often... They're, they're a character, but they're not really a character. They're right. themselves, but yeah. they will amplify themselves, with the exception of, like, a Kaufman or a hamburger or something. Well, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's what I loved about... Uh, Anthony Jeselnik is that, you know, the whole persona that he's crafted was ultimately a result of him having anxiety I to go on stage. That. So he just went as far the opposite way with it and just convinced the crowd that you're just smarter than them <laughs> and better than them. And that's what he did. And he built a whole act off of it. Yeah, and it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. That that uh, special he did in Austin that turned out not to be a special. And he does the Q&A afterwards. And I don't know if you were there for that. And someone was like, well, um, at Paramount? Did you go to that show? No, no. I saw him at okay. Cap City. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> so at Paramount, it was obviously a larger show. It was supposed to be a tape special. And then came to. There were no cameras. It was obvious it wasn't. And he did a Q&A afterwards. And one of the questions was, we were under the impression it was. Why isn't it now a tape special? And he said, well, I talked to my agents. We had all lined it up. And uh, then another offer came through a couple days later for a lot more money a couple months down the line. So I said, fuck all you. <laughs> and I'm going to wait a couple months and make a lot more money. And everyone applauded. And it was just like perfect. It was You built up that persona to just shit on the audience. <laughs> and it was great. That's what you go to a Jesselnik show for. I brought Seth out there he had never seen live comedy and he loved comedy he for high school he would perform stand-up but he had never seen a fucking show oh wow i was like dude you don't fucking know you don't know what live comedy is it's visceral when you're there in a comedy club it's like punk rock it's mm -hmm. so much different than seeing it on a tv screen you have to come with me and we had a friend chuck 
that was basically star flighted, jaws of life, terrible fucking car wreck, should have been dead that day. Went see him in the hospital, say what's up, you're alive, we're glad you make it. Really emotional experience. And I go, dude, we're gonna go see the show. And he's like, ah, you know, I wanna chill out, I'm not really in the mood. And I'm like, exactly. That's why you're gonna come fucking yeah. see this. This is yeah. so cathartic, you don't know. And I forced him to see it, and it was Jesselnik. Oh, and wow. he fucking loved it. It was such a good show, it was Cap City. It was that small room, yeah. and he fucking killed it in there. And we just, it was still one of the best shows I've ever seen. And I've seen Robin Williams, I've seen Jerry Seinfeld live. Wow. And it just, that, you'll never get to see Jesselnik in that room again. Right. But Jesselnik in Cap City was intense. You cut that fucking air with a knife. Yeah. It was good. That's oh, what yeah. I love about, more recently I went to, because I went to Cap City, and just getting out, like, one of the best experiences, obviously just being in there, but you kind of lose, like, the concept of time, in a sense. If the comedian's really good, they'll do an hour, and it feels like 20 minutes. Yeah. It's like, oh, I wanted more. But you get out of it, and it's, like, the best feeling, like, because just your, your pleasure centers and, like... You're just like relieved from stress and all your you know life bullshit for like a couple hours, you know, and it's just like the best feeling. Like I normally don't even get that feeling. Well, occasionally from like live music shows. Not as much but, anymore for me. Yeah, for sure. You used to do that, but not anymore. Yeah, maybe it's because I I play out so often. Maybe I just get jaded and and, and seeing bands anymore. But it uh, is it is a very unique kind of escapism. Yeah, it's you know it's not like going to see like a storyteller's episode or anything but it, it is such a unique style of entertainment that yeah it's one of those things where yeah you don't have to be in the mood yeah it, it will take care of itself yeah you, will, you yeah. will get led that's true yeah and there's a diverse we've seen I've seen Bamford in that room Maria Bamford mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and she's such so silly and so absurdist and then you see someone serious and that gamut but um, you know I always gravitate towards the tragic comedians. The Richard Pryor is my pinnacle because to talk about fucking burning yourself up, to talk about sucking dick, yeah, fucking to talk about being raised in a whorehouse and make it funny, mm-hmm. holy shit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most appropriate way to approach it. You can cry, you can wallow in self-pity. What the fuck good is it doing? Find a way to laugh about it yourself and make a room full of people laugh about it. Holy shit. And talk about real shit. So you walk around on a Friday after a long week work week and uh, you fucking have that experience where time disappears stress disappears you have a cathartic experience you're sharing it with a bunch of yeah. people you have a couple drinks and some fried pickles you fucking feel good that's yeah. true yeah the, I, th- I think a contemporary a female contemporary at a prior right now is Miss Pat have you heard her? no she's this um, older black woman who started out as a drug dealer in her like she was 14 she had a kid her first kid when she was like 14 from a married man and so immediately she's born into this terrible neighborhood becomes the best like pretty much crack dealer in the neighborhood is making a crap load of money meanwhile her mom is an alcoholic and I, th- I think she was like an amputee and she would beat um, beat her and her and her sisters and like there's a story she says that she, um, she would go over to her uncle's house and basically his uncle her uncle didn't have full control over legs. So what would happen is the uncle would call a prostitute over and basically help help her uncle like fuck this prostitute. Like you know when she's like in her teens and like this is this is like what she's doing and it's just like you you're listening to this and it's just like 
how are you alive for one like and the, the fact that you're you're a successful comedian today is just like phenomenal it's just I would have taken my life a long time yeah. ago I'm not nearly as strong as you yeah yeah and it's just I mean she's she's recently married and like you know her husband pretty much like took brought her out of this shithole of a life that she had and and showed her everything and then she eventually turned to comedy as a way of coping with all this like disastrous shit that happened in her life. Something on This American Life years ago, they were talking about a female comedian in New York that lost her family in 9-11. Her husband was a banker, maybe the kids, something really fucking tragic, but went from having a life to everything I care about is gone. And she responded with comedy. And she had jokes about fucking my husband dying in the towers. And just, this is like a month after in New York. Dead audiences. No one's fucking laughing at that yeah. shit. And and so Ira Glass, whoever, is talking to her, and she was like, yeah, it's for me. And there's just, I, that's what I fucking love. Yeah. Is that comedy that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's very serious. Um, I started listening to Bill Hicks when I was like seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. And that was my, that was the first comedian that I remember. And then I was watching Seinfeld around the same time, the show. And that's what shaped me forever. Is yeah. that really strong cynicism? And the, the funny thing, I remember Seinfeld talking and someone saying, you know, it's one of the comedians in Cars with Coffee, mm-hmm. his show. Mm-hmm. And someone's talking about, Bill Burr, I think, is like, dude, everyone, I never got how people said Seinfeld was a show about nothing. Because when I watch it, I see like very cynical social criticism. Uh-huh. And we've been rewatching it and it's like, yeah, this is fucking biting. I uh-huh. just, in the last week, started watching I've never seen a single episode wow no no last week I just started watching Curb Your Enthusiasm I had never seen a single episode and so I'm discovering that for the first time and just I'm so good up through season four now it's exhausting yeah it is completely (sighs) exhausting have you seen Peep Show okay Yeah. Peep Peep Show is the British version of Curb it's oh, okay. awkward. I've had people over that leave the room. They can't be in the room. Really? It's... You watch Strangers with Candy? Mm-hmm. Same idea, British. Really offensive. Really cheeky. Um, it's all POV. So it's two dudes, roommates. One's an artist. Free. If it feels good, do it. Fuck yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Druggy. Just don't, no yeah. responsibilities. And the other is an uptight fucking banker. And they're all college buddies that live together. They hate each other. But they can't separate each other. They can't separate themselves from one another, and so that's the setup. Um, they're just terrible fucking people. They make terrible decisions. Yeah. I watched it, and it's British, and it's very British. And so th- I tried watching it and failed. And then again, I'm like, me. I live with this guy that's really into English comedy, and like I've heard good things. I tried watching it. Let's watch it again. We get through episode four, and the whole the whole thing is. Me and Dieter were hanging out all night. We had a fucking boys' night. And we're, it's the next day, and we're trying to, like, what the fuck happened? And I'm sitting there going, what's... Dude, I remember something bad. Like, what's the bad thing? Hungover. <laughs> remembering, and, and I'm like, was it was it the baguette? 
And then the flashback is a fucking baguette with 40 joints in it. And we're taking fucking bong rips out of a baguette with 40 joints in it. And we're like, no, that was pretty good. And it's like, <laughs> all right. And then you, it's like the next day you're still cleaning up and you're like, well, what was the, was it the dental floss? <coughs> and you go to the fucking, you know, at midnight, a couple hours later, you're all fucked up. And I try to strangle you with dental floss. And I'm yeah. like, floss is boss. Fucking <laughs> trying to strangle you. And you're like, no, that's the bad thing. And so the whole thing, you're like, what is the bad thing? And it progressively gets worse and worse the end of the fucking episode is oh yeah we're in bed it's fucking five in the morning and i'm like well all right super hands you blow me and then when i come i'll blow you and he's just finishing and you're watching on this is channel four mainstream british comedy you're watching a dude's face come up from another dude's crotch sweaty fucking red lips and you're like he goes okay my turn now credits roll and I look over to my buddy and we're going that went on co- on fucking cable TV yeah we're cracking up we're like next episode and f- I mean fucking amazing terrible wow great yeah so finish Curb and then when you want to go to an even more offensive even more awkward British version go to Peep Show alright um yeah David Mitchell Robert Webb Mitchell and Webb look is their sketch comedy mm-hmm. but they're popular British comedians you will fucking love it it's equal parts curb and strangers with candy just awkward dry yeah Ugh. I mean I've I, I, I've had people just leave the room and go fuck yeah. you for making me watch this I can't I cannot watch this there's a wedding episode where two oh, of yeah. the main characters get married and they're it's been built up for seasons and years and they're on the podium and they just start bawling crying and I'm crying watching it <laughs> it's fucking phenomenal television yeah it's I, I think it's the height of comedy when you just have this that's what life is yeah. depending on who you are it's fucking terrible misery yeah. that somehow we find a way to laugh about yeah comedy's tragedy plus time is the old adage right I think that's brings pretty true yeah but Canaan's up there right now um, who would be the other really good? I mean, Bill Burr is on the top of my list, um, but he's quite established. Yeah, Kanane's coming up. Jesselnik, Natasha Leggero. I saw her mm-hmm. live. Holy fuck! Cap City. Yeah. She front I stage. I wanted to see that show. Okay, there. There's a couple in the in the very front at one of those little cocktail tables, and she starts doing some crowd work on them, and she goes, "Well, I notice your girl doesn't have a ring. How long have you guys been dating? Seven years." What the fuck? She starts talking more, prodding a little more. Oh, well, you're already married, and this is your side girl. Well, how long is that? Oh, a couple years on the side? Holy shit. And they're obviously red in the face, embarrassed, being caught out in a fucking room full of 100 strangers. So then she goes, well, fuck this. Do you like this girl? Yeah. Well, obviously, you're cheating on your wife with her. You're fucking throwing all that away for this, and you've been doing it for years. So tell you what, why don't you guys come on stage? And they try not to, and she won't drop it. No, come on stage. She she almost did all crowd work. She brings them on stage. They clearly don't want to be on stage. Then she fucking forces the guy. Do you get if you don't give a fuck about her, tell her right now and let her get on. This is a young good looking oh woman. God. She has better shit to do with you. You're a fucking married man. Or do you want to commit to this woman right now? And he drops on her knee and he proposed to her. Whether or not that last and Natasha Legero made that happen. Oh my fucking God. awkward, phenomenal, weird <sighs> experience to be in, exactly. And then afterwards I'm with two dudes that 
I'm just, let's come fucking hang out. They're six street rats. And uh, they come up and they're like, that was great, man. She was great. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, we're going to go invite her out. And I go, all right, cool. You guys clearly didn't watch the same show I was watching. Yeah. You think she's going to, you know, hang out with a couple fucking mid 20 year olds? And they go up, Wancho and Arturo. And uh, I go, hey, man, uh, great set. You know, we're going to go party on 6th Street. Do you want to come? She goes, Oh, that's that's great. That was it. Perfect, Miss Hasha. <laughs> yeah, she probably gave him her hand. Exactly. <laughs> Man, fucking phenomenal live show. Wow. I've loved her on the show, the another period, and then her stand-up specials. Yeah. But live, she's one of those people that Jesselnick does great, but live, it's just she's got something in her crowd work I didn't expect, and she. I just, I, as as aggressive as I can be, especially on stage, I would have been awkward in that. And she just went, fuck this. No, come here. And fuck you, girl. I'm going to do something for you. And just, it was phenomenal. Put them both on the spot. Uh, just stop this. Why are you doing this to them? Don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. One of the one of the better crowd work experiences I've ever had. Yeah. That's fantastic. You guys get a chance to see her. See her. I wish uh, we could yeah. see Joe Rogan. Yeah. Damn. So how to how let's let's uh get back on board with with cooking. Oh because yeah, maybe sure. how to how that maybe kind of if we can segue from comedy and music and how that relates to cooking. Oh, it was comical. Cooking. It was. Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't grow up knowing how to cook. I mean, I grew up naming my bacon. Um, okay. Growing up on a hog farm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mom was always an avid gardener, so uh, you know, I already had a pretty good idea of where food came from. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, I moved, actually, I, I came to visit Austin uh, for a girl, and uh, it was my first time in Austin, and I just didn't take the return flight back. Nice. I was like, told my mom, like, mail down my drums, I'm staying. <laughs> and uh, she was vegetarian at the time, and uh, which meant that I quickly became vegetarian. Oh, nice. And after having my first vegetarian meal at Mother's... Mm. Oh. Uh, I had the first meal of my life that made me angry, which was a very fascinating experience for me that food would make me like I I walked back to look in the kitchen because I wanted to make eye contact. So with good. The it fuck- was angry. Yeah. No, it was fucking horrible. Oh, it was the wor- oh. one of the worst meals I've ever had in my life. What did was, you get? Do you remember? It was probably like the a vegetarian meal or meatloaf or something that shouldn't have been. It was, it was my with. fuck up anyway to like I had this thing against people who like vegan bacon it's like you're lying to yourself yeah like, don't right. why why do you do that uh, so it was, it was after that meal that I realized like because Austin was not a foodie town at the time mm-hmm. like the, the closest thing you could get to a vegetarian meal was like beans and rice at Liz on me which is no longer there um, so I realized that I'm going to have to learn how to cook or I'm going to fucking die because you can't you can't be vegetarian in this town if you don't know how to cook for yourself. Mm-hmm. So it started out with a lot of uh, tofu tacos <laughs> with turmeric, yeah, which is m- almost more of a colorant than anything. Right. Um, and then like getting recipes from my mom of stuff that I really liked eating as a kid, like you know, just removing the meat from them. Uh, and then <clears throat> once I got back into eating meat again, I think it was probably bacon. That brought me back, but I was a vegetarian for a couple of years and uh, really got acquainted with, made a lot of beans, right? And you know, it, it was kind of it. But uh, 
A lot of beans, a lot of rice, a lot of chips and salsa. Um, and then once I got back to eating meat again, I really started experimenting and uh, very irresponsibly. So like like I thought I thought I was already a cook and I was not. I was just making very terrible decisions like pounding out a chicken breast and putting in Velveeta cheese and rolling it in breadcrumbs and baking it. It's like, eh, it's like a white trash sto- chicken Kiev. Stoner's cookbook or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then from there, it kind of <clears throat> got to a point where my buddy, uh, who was the bassist for Blue Noise Band at the time, and I had really started getting serious about really cooking and there wasn't there wasn't a foodie scene yet like food tv wasn't even really even a thing yet and uh so we started throwing these dinner parties where it would be eight to fifteen courses over the span of five hours Mm -hmm. and Mm. you know it was just a way of like cooking testing out new things uh and just entertaining our friends because everyone we knew was in bands and and then from there we launched a catering company which we called Two Straight Guys Cookworks. And the tagline was because everyone else is fucking gay. Um, <laughs> and uh, my friend, who was the wife of the French master chef I told you about, uh, she was the one that named the catering company. Oh, and we were like, that's, that's great. Because there wasn't, I mean, there was word of mouth catering, I think was the only catering company in town at the time that, you know, I played enough weddings and stuff, eat a lot of catered food, and everything that they were doing was awesome. And I was like, well, we can do this. So we launched the catering company and had uh, a very primitive uh, online menu that we would change every week. And the beauty of that was we would create the menus, and if nobody ordered anything, we didn't have to make it. Yeah. So I was doing really, like, this is when I started watching a lot of, this is when Iron Chef was, like, really a big thing. So we were watching Iron Chef and getting... uh, Again, a lot more irresponsible decisions of like basically like taking ingredients like make them fuck you know just like just <laughs> smash them together. Good plus good equals good, which is still a theory that I, you know, subscribe to. But like I was doing, a, I read a story on Mario Batali, who had just shown up at somebody's party in New York, and another person had shown up with this huge lobe of foie gras. They didn't have anything else to go with it, so Mari Batali found a bunch of like cherry Jolly Ranchers and melted them down in vinegar and made a gastrique and used that as the sauce for the foie gras. Yeah. I was like, oh, I like that a lot. So it melted down green apple Jolly Ranchers and cider vinegar and glazed pork chops with them, mm. with and like oh, steeped jalapenos in there as well. So it was green apple jalapeno candied pork chops. Uh, and we ended up doing really well with that. And then from there, it was just, I just started going from kitchen to kitchen, just offering to work for free like let me let me wash the potatoes nice you know like a proper apprenticing right? yeah um, right. because I didn't want to like and my friend who was the, the the French chef he was a Cordon Bleu grad Paris like he started out in hotels when he was 12 um, and he had a bistro in town and he would take me to do catering gigs with him instead of his sous chefs and his sous chefs started getting pissed off at me and uh and yeah, from there, he, he basically told me, he's like, don't go to culinary school. It's like, you're you're already on the right path. Just keep asking questions. You know, every time you start in a new kitchen, if you are unsure about the job you're doing, ask them to demonstrate one time how they want it done and just do it that way. Yeah. You know, because a lot of uh, culinary students will graduate and come into a kitchen thinking that they've already, they already oh, know it right. all. And it's like, yeah, you may know that, but you don't know this kitchen. Right. And right. it's like, I'm a chef. No, you're a shithead. 
Like, you're back to square one. Like, maybe you know a bunch of techniques and recipes, but as far as real-world experience, it's such a different fucking animal. Yeah. Um, so I worked in a bistro for a couple of years. Uh, ended up working at Z Tejas for three years, which completely kicked my ass. Because I was the only white guy in that kitchen, aside from the sous oh, chef nice. and the head chef and the executive chef. Yeah. And uh, they hazed the shit out of me for several months. And again, I didn't let them know that I spoke Spanish. So I was hearing all the things that they were saying about me. And they nice. were, like, it was on a daily basis. They were just trying to break me. Like, they would have to, they would, someone would sabotage my shit so that we'd have to 86 something and I'd have to make something on the fly that takes hours to do. Ugh. And, you know, some of the Mexican girls would come up from the upstairs kitchen down to my little dungeon prep area where I had to work by myself with no stereo. And just come down, like, bang on the counter, like, no, I'm not! And, like, just scream at me and just leave. And, uh, yeah, I was working, like, 12, 14 hour days. I didn't take a day off for the first several weeks. Uh, just because I, because I, what I learned in the kitchen is what most people learn in organized sports or the military or, you know, a, a really good parental unit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And for me, I was mostly raised by my single mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, she came from a clan of women. So males on that side of the family are an oddity. So, uh, you know, for me, the kitchen experience was, you know, regimen, discipline consistency, uh, efficiency, multitasking. Like, you have to learn all of these things to be a proper cook. And at Z Tejas, I would show up at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning and have my, my own entire kitchen to do all of the prep production. And, you know, within 30 minutes of being there, I had six huge pots on the stove. I had all the ovens filled and was working on, you know, 22-quart containers of different salsas and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the interview, the gravelly-voiced sous chef, who was like a former rugby player from Oklahoma, just literally red-necked as can be, just... Uh, he's kind of my own little personal Gordon Ramsay. Um, he asked me in the interview, straight up, he's like, you're not one of these Food Network-watching twinkle-toed faggots, are you? <laughs> that was in the interview. That was verbatim That's what amazing. he said to me. And uh, I was like, no, sir. <laughs> I wasn't sure exactly. I mean, I watch Food Network, but I'm not like, you know, jerking off to it. Um, and I toughed it out. Like, they tried to break me over and over and over and over. I always came in on my days off. If they called me, I always stayed late. Never, ever, ever have I ever called in sick to a cooking job. And the whiplash of cooking, it sounds like. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, you know, it was. It's the industry. It was, right. it was decent Tex-Mex. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't cuisine necessarily, yeah. but there were there were some really good techniques in there. But that's when I got my bitchy little spine broke, and realized that you can work a lot harder than you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And after you know my first year, uh, I'd already gotten two promotions. Got moved up to the big boy kitchen with all the Mexicans. I already had several Spanish nicknames. Now they knew that I spoke Spanish, and they knew that I played timbales because I would set up all the little. You know, sixth, third, and ninth pans, which are all the little metal prep containers, and set them up and play like Costco patterns and you know everything and sing along and shit. And they're just like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" Pelos de elote, they called me, corn hair because of the blonde spots. <laughs> are those uh, natural? Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I died as an infant, and they shocked me back to life, and my hair did that. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But uh, 
so from there, I think that's about the time that I joined What Made Milwaukee Famous, so I was starting to tour more. And, uh, yeah, I was out of the kitchen for a while. The catering company wasn't happening anymore. And then uh, I did a little bit of food truck work for Lucky's Pooches, which kind of drew me back into the kitchen. Because I've been playing so much. And that's the thing with having so many things that I do. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to juggle three balls than it is five. So something will always kind of sit by the wayside for a little while while I work on something else. Um, and then... I started out as a part-time prep cook at the place I was head chef, and after three months, because I'm a terrible employee, uh, I can't obey anything that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I just can't. Like I said, I can't think within my pay grade. Like I'm constantly just trying to look for holes where things can be tightened up and you know efficiency can be better. And the head chef was operating at a 56% food cost, which is criminal. Mm-hmm. You want 20 is the sweet spot. And uh, so the owners one day pulled me aside and they're like, Do you think you can run the show? I was like, In- internally, I was like, Say no. Say no. I was like, yeah. Yes. Fuck, what did you do? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I ended up running the show and dropping food cost to like 18%. and had a lot of successful menus, but it's one of those things where it can burn you out really fast if you're not, like I couldn't keep my, like I wanted, it was one of the situations where I wished I could clone myself because Mm -hmm. like it's really hard to find cooks in this town that you can trust. Like it is the same way with musicians. Like you're a dude in a band and you're a shithead. Like that's not, so I was having to turn like civilians into cooks right you know with the amount of money that I was given to pay them which works but it was just one of those things where every time you pull it all together and the sand's just too wet and it just falls apart again so after going through that several times it was like my quality of life was I mean I was making great money but my life outside of work was I couldn't shut it off yeah I could not shut it I I I had several breakdowns during that job where it's like I've been through so I've been held at gunpoint more than the average bear. I've been pulled over by several squad cars and a helicopter on acid. I've been kidnapped. I've you know, I've I've had all these crazy fucking things happen where you're just like, "Hi mom, this is really happening." Like you just want to take a little picture and like, "Can you believe you ended up in this fucked up, fucked up situation?" And that experience reset so many bars for me, where it's like, I can't believe I'm experiencing all of these emotions with such intensity simultaneously. Yeah. Like, it was literally awesome. Like, I was I was in awe of, I really thought the bar was fucking set for low. And, uh, like, I couldn't sleep at night. Like, I would get, like, three hours of sleep, and then the first crack of sunlight would come through the window, and one eye would open, and the whole circus would kick in again. And it was just living this constant state of anxiety of, like, having to fire people and bring in new people, and who can I trust, and did everyone remember to order this? And just, it's, it's so fucking hard. Yeah. And especially in a town where... There are so many new restaurants, and there's so much new money, and people with no experience in the culinary scene that like, oh, I'm going to open a, a food truck, because I made a bunch of money doing software. And people don't realize that this is a blue-collar job that has been over-romanticized to the point that everybody thinks it's this glorious thing. It's not. I mean... Yeah. 
think if they did the, and, and because of that, because of that boom in the foodie scene and so many new college, uh, like uh, culinary school graduates, it's been devalued. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, the scene is just fucked. Like there's so many dilettantes. There are so many people who think that they're chefs and I still hesitate to call myself a chef. Yeah. Even though I've been one and I'm not currently, like I do personal chef work and stuff and it's not quite the same. Like if I introduce myself to Marco Pierre White or Gordon Ramsay, I'd be like, I'm a cook. Right. You know what I mean? There's there's a, there's a sense of humility that's lacking, and that's the same. The dilettantism, the democratization, is Austin is music, is brewing, is culinary. This is what our town is known for, and it's we've talked a lot about it. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's a nuanced thing, but it definitely is a thing that's happening here. Everybody has an opinion on food. Mm-hmm. Everybody. The crazy thing about music is everyone has an opinion. So people, strong opinions. I didn't know you were a musician. I didn't know you had a doctorate in music. Well, I fucking don't, but I'm here telling you how you fucked up, what I liked about your set. Okay. And drums even more than that, because like we were talking about earlier, if you miss a beat, if you come in earlier or later, people know it. The most ignorant of listeners knows it, because drums... Everybody's a drummer, every, or at least everybody has a rhythm. Your heart beats right. to a rhythm. Sure. You walk to a rhythm. You, we all know inherently what rhythm is. And when you're off rhythm, we inherently know what that is. Mm-hmm. And so you can't fucking fake drums. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great things about it is when you fuck up, it's not like guitars where you're like, I wanted to play a dissonant chord. Right. No, the, you're you, always a half step away from the right note. Yeah. yeah. It's not the same with drums. It's not the same. And it's clear, and you can't fake it. Um, when I'm listening to you talk about your experience in the culinary world, it mirrors my experience in the brewing industry. And having grown up as I was 14 brewing and I didn't want to, and it was a chore for my stepdad, and it was it's hard to find good beer, and it's a lot of fucking work, and I need your help. Cool. It's in the kitchen. I know how to... I've been cooking for myself, single mother, learned how to make mac and cheese. I'm comfortable in a kitchen doing basic shit. I mm-hmm. can boil a pot of beer. And so 14, 15 doing it, it's a fucking lot of work. I'm not reaping any of the benefits. And he's going, trust me, someday you'll be popular. And I'm going, right now is not the day. And right now I'm trying to play video games or whatever the case may be. <laughs> but, but it came to, and now that's what I do for a profession. And it's becoming so popular. And I left music because music wasn't paying my bills. And beer was. And now beer is becoming the popular vocation. And I'm going, I'm just a fucking hipster, man. That's like oh. six months in front of the curb. But no matter what, it, I'm not, I accept it. It's what it is. But I, that's, it, now brewing is really popular. And it's for good reason. And I love that beer is popular. But at the same time, it's becoming that foodie thing. It's becoming that wine thing. It's becoming that nose upturned, snobbish thing. Where I'm walking around in bars, I'm hanging out with my friends, and they're going, oh, well, Jeremy, you like this beer? It's full of diacetyl, that all flavor, and I can't believe you don't taste it. Man, let this motherfucker like his beer. Yeah. yeah. Don't talk no shit. It's great that you got your $10 word and you can taste the off flavor. Keep it to your fucking self. Yeah. It's just the one thing that our industry is going to kill itself over is if we become snobbish. Mm-hmm. But if we can... The cool thing about craft beer is that it's equal parts cowboy and snobby. Mm-hmm. And it's just like what you're going to fucking like, an individual. And I, I bought a pack of Coors Yellow Bellies and fucking loved them. Mm-hmm. They were great fucking beers. But I also love my Hans Pills. Hell yeah. And, and you can like whatever the fuck you're going to like. I don't want to talk shit about it. 
but also let me do the same. Yeah. And I feel like craft beer, you know, people, I had a couple older people in Minnesota when I visited them saying, don't you feel like it's maybe a fad? And, you know, we have all these craft beer popping up and it seems like it's going to rock for another 10 years and then die down. I said, you could be right. You definitely could be. Mm-hmm. But also if you look historically, beer is something that's generally really local and just like food is. Mm-hmm. And we kind of lost that for a hundred years in America, but I think it's coming back. I think that's basically as simple as you need to say it is that we got really homogenized and we really got really into this really efficient mm-hmm. way to produce a mass good distribute it to the mass number of people and there's always going to be that especially when we're pumping out kids like we are and there's mm-hmm. 8 billion people on the earth but there's also a movement when people can afford it to go back to local and craft and I want to brew beer that Mike makes or Dieter makes and right. and then if I'm in North Austin I want to drink Austin Beer Works because they're closer to me and that's awesome Yeah. Um, and pre-prohibition levels of breweries surpassed where they are now or roughly equal, but there were 4,000 breweries in the United States before Prohibition, and now there's wow. 3,800, 4,000 coming up. I but we're, know that. we've just reached the levels that there were before Prohibition. A lot of people don't. And that's, that's crazy. Historically, it was this guy in my neighborhood makes this beer. Mm-hmm. It's good. Nah, it gives me headaches. So I go a little bit farther down the neighborhood or something, but it was localized. And it wasn't this thing where it was three brands, mm-hmm. and they all kind of taste Monopoly. the same. Um, yeah, and that's changing back to it was. And so my response to them, these people that are middle-aged that were like, well, is this a fad? I said, it could be, but I don't think so. I think the fad was the homogenized big brand shit that lasted 100 years. Right. And I think we're going back to like, why am I not? I, I can't provide all of my own tomatoes, but I can provide 40% of them. Mm-hmm. And it's a minimal amount of work. And so in the back, I have five tomato plants. Boom, I can do a little bit. We all have varying degrees of what we can do, but it saves me money. It feels good. The tomatoes that I grow are a lot fucking better. I hate zucchini. Mm-hmm. I eat the zucchini I grow. It's a way I'm a really picky eater. It We've means about more. That. It means more. It's my way. I don't eat mushrooms, but um, I want to eat mushrooms. I don't like vinegar in cooking, but I want to like it. I mm-hmm. know that these, these picky tastes are only a detriment to me. And so the sooner I can overcome them, the better. The easiest way for me to do that is to grow them. Yep. Because the zucchini that I grew, that I watered, that I put the soil in, that I planted the seed, it's fucking a lot harder to say I'm going to throw this away or yeah. give it away oh, than just sure. to eat it. And I'm going to force myself to eat it. And through that process, I've, I used to fucking dip my chips in salsa, but wipe everything else off it and just have the sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went from yeah. just eating chips to just the sauce, to now I fucking love salsa. Hell yeah. But that, I'm just a shithead that was raised on meat and potatoes and only meat and potatoes, and I've had to, like, produce is okay, fruits are okay, vegetables, but it's you have to push yourself, you have to find those limits, and when you invest yourself in something, the rewards you reap are so much better. Absolutely. I was a terribly, terribly picky eater as a kid, and, like, I didn't want to see any onions or peppers... Or anything. I didn't even know what garlic looked like until I was probably 19, 20. Except for I'd sign one of those little boxes that had the like, little cellophane window. That's not right. garlic, that's a prison. No. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so when I really started to get serious about cooking, I realized that I had these hang ups that if I was going to be an objective cook, that I had to get over. Like I, uh, I grew up hating hominy, but I was, you know, being forced to eat it out of a can, which almost nothing is good out of a can. Ever. Right. 
uh, Hearts of Palm, maybe, but not much else. I like peas out of a can. Peas, peas are another good one. Yeah. Um, spinach, probably the worst thing ever. Oh yeah. Um, so Quick. I was I was making myself I was making myself confront these things that I felt I was being uh, unfairly impartial to, and uh, the first big thing was like okay hominy, so. I spent a whole day making pozole. Like, I made a green pozole and, like, made the chicken stock scratch. Yeah. Like, smoked the chicken, then, like, roasted the carcass and made the stock. Made the tomatillo sauce, everything, and, you know, soaked the hominy. It was a whole, like, almost a weekend process of making this. And the whole time I'm making it, I've still got this nagging fear in the back of my head. Like, what if you still fucking hate your own child that you've created from, you know, this ingredient that you're traumatized by? And I ate it fucking outstanding and then what I realized was I just don't like canned vegetables Mm -hmm. Uh, and I went through the same thing with carrots which I strongly disliked and the only thing that I still can honestly say that I will hate for the rest of my life because it's a garbage vegetable is green bell peppers (laughs) it's fucking shit they taste like nothing they're just an unripe red bell pepper they're acrid that's true they don't have flavor Uh, just give me a, a poblano or an anaheim or Anything but a green bell pepper. I fucking hate them. So what do you do in your fajitas? Uh, Poblanos. Poblano. Nice. Red bell pepper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got. And that's that was leading me to another thing. You know, you're talking about how the, the the market is just saturated with bands, with food trucks and restaurants and breweries, and so the smoky treats thing for me was a way to do smaller scale food production on my terms. That. I mean, it's not a huge moneymaker, and I'm mostly just supplying, you know, jarred things to my friends. But at the same time, uh, because everything is preserved, canned, uh, cured, dried, my inventory is never going to go bad. Yeah. So I can have as much stuff or as little stuff as I want on hand, and if someone places an order, it's like, all right, well, I guess I know what I'm doing today. You know, assuming they don't want, you know, a fleet of smoke-dried tomatoes right. in three hours, like, that's not going to happen. But, yeah. Um, and that part's been really cool. It's, you know, occasionally I get some big orders. Like I said, Wheatsville wants to carry that vegan queso, but that's a whole other world of paperwork mm-hmm. and licensing and insurance and barcodes and nutritional data and shelf life and wholesale jars. And so I'm not quite sure if I'm going to make that jump. Yeah. But for now, it's just kind of a fun way for me to share food with my friends that like, hey, when are you going to cook for me? And it's like, I don't know. When are you going to come over to my place and do your fucking job for free? Right. You know? But, uh, you know, I'll sell you a $5 jar of smoked tomato marinara. Like, that's yeah. something you can take home. And then you can cook for yourself like you should, you fucking idiot. Like, yeah. You know, it, it surprises me. Like, I've in the last couple weeks, I've met so many adults who don't know how to cook or don't know how to swim. Mm. It's like, You're these the are metaphors for much bigger. Yeah. Like, you can't feed yourself and you can't swim. Yeah, I, th- I think both of you guys have hit the nail on the head, if, even if you didn't know it, but this whole local vor type of movement and just knowing... For me, I think a sign of intelligence is knowing where your food's coming from. Oh, absolutely. And knowing where it's going because food waste is like the biggest problem in this country it's and it's huge. absolutely abhorrent. Yeah. Like, yeah. It just makes yeah. me sick. Yeah. And I think primarily what I've been thinking about, and I've been I've been doing a lot of writing uh, drafts-wise, just uh, compiling different aspects of what makes sustainable communities because to me that's the core 
of, of, of a of civilization is a sustainable community that's within a small local plot of land can sustain itself and by that point when that's fulfilled fulfilled its own self stuff like politics and government are pretty much um, inac inaccurate and, 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 and don't really mean anything and so that's why there's like a really good Wendell Berry quote who it says eating is an agricultural act and that's something that kind of runs through my mind because it's like yeah it's almost like voting because you are essentially voting every, for every time you eat you're what sure. who you're supporting and it's um, and another quote i heard recently was what you eat you're either feeding disease or fighting disease and i think that's a little extreme in some sense but i think the way everything especially in agribusiness is made now perfectly understandable i mean Diabetes and obesity, it's all diet based and the standard American diet is just like I'd say being on ham's awesome. Yeah. Um and you know, they do everything they can. I've been sent to a couple of free clinics and you go in those free clinics and it's one of the most depressing fucking places. Mm -hmm. There's if there's ten fucking printouts and posters and P PSAs on the wall, nine of them are about diabetes. And nine of them are like, Don't fucking feed your kids diet coke. Or Coca-Cola uh -huh. and candy all the time, and then I'm I'm I had one of these experiences and I was kind of tripping out and was like, like it was overwhelming the amount of information that was counteracting diabetes. I was talking to Arturo who lives in this neighborhood, who volunteers at a number of uh, um, schools in the area, and if anyone's listening and doesn't know where we are, we're in Dub Springs, Austin. And it's highly Hispanic, like number one teen pregnancy rate, mm -hmm. number one area where people are speaking English as a second language. So it's a lot of immigrants and a lot of Latin immigrants. And Arturo is like, yeah, I work at all the schools. You'd be surprised at the number of elementary school students that have gold teeth. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean? What's that about? And he goes, well, their teeth are falling out <gasps> before they get adult teeth. And the solution is to put fucking gold plates on them because of the sugar intake as a kid. And of course, the teeth is the first thing, but diabetes is a close second. That's why you're seeing all that shit. Mm -hmm. Because for 20, 30 years, all these fucking Mexicans that are working their ass off 15 hours a day are coming home, don't have time to cook. Easy shit, cheap shit. Mm -hmm. What's that? Sugar, poison. Boom. Now we have an entire people, class of people, a group of ethnic people that are being poisoned. Yeah. Boom. It's not intentional. Yeah. But that's what's happening. And you, that's what you're fucking seeing for the first time as some white guy in free health clinics now mm -hmm. is the amount of Hispanic diabetes that's rampant. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. yeah. Eye opening. The, and going back to what you're talking about is just knowing where your food comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, because I've had, I've had a lot of really good conversations with vegetarians and vegans and, you know, of all stripes. Like I know, I know people who are vegan and vegetarian who are the most unhealthy people I know. Where oh, it's just sure. like bread and cheese vegetarians or vegans who just eat their expensive processed foods. Yeah, like the fake and bacon. <clears throat> centers. Yeah, you know, and you know, like uh, I've had, I've gotten in really heated discussions with people who, you know, talk to me about being a carnivore and it's like, do you know how many pigs I looked in the eyes that I, you know, that I named? And I, you know, I say I named my bacon, but it mm -hmm. wasn't like, ha 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 ha. It was like, I was very close to these animals and pigs are still my favorite animals on the planet. But, you know, living in a society where people don't want to know that their food once had eyes or hand, you know, feet or feelings. And it's like, right. that is so much worse than being a 
conscious carnivore is just being a mindless just a, a blind appetite like mm-hmm. you know the, the fact that people are you know I don't want to see like you know they want to eat fish with like the head still on or something and it's like that is so much more dishonest and disrespectful of you know like a lot of my favorite food growing up was pulling radishes out of the dirt and eating them with still a little bit of dirt on them or like mm. you know cherry tomatoes that were still warm from the sun like I've gone to my mom's garden with like a little salt shaker yeah like would be yeah. totally fucking happy. It's perverted. It's more perverted to take the head off, in a way. Um, ah, I'm fucking losing my points getting late in the day. But uh, that, the dishonest food, to me, is something that's serious, yeah. And it's just own what you're going to do. I'm a carnivore. I will always be a carnivore. Um, and I've had, that's that was the point, the hunting, being from Texas. Mm-hmm. A lot of encounters to hunt. And I've mm-hmm. hunted a couple times, just enough to say I've done it. And I like it. The point, it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's not something that I'm realistically going to do all the time. I could never hunt all of my own meat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a luxury. And if I could somehow make enough money and not have a job or not have to work 40 hours a week and go once a month and hunt and process the game, then we're talking. Yeah. But right now, I have to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would be great. But I'm so thankful for the experiences that I've had of shooting a living animal. And it's, it's not, it, it wasn't done in disrespect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, and I think it, in the hunter's argument that always rings true to me is it's far more disrespectful to go to H-E-B, buy your meat, and not think twice about it. Cook it and be done with it. And someone like you that's had the experience on, on a farm, this is a pig that for years I've had a close relationship with. Pigs are smarter than dogs. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's listening that has a great experience with dogs, I love my dogs. Pigs are the same thing, if not more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you killed it and ate it. And that wasn't an act of hate. It was an act of love. Oh, yeah. And it was this weird relationship that, that hopefully you can understand it. But if not, experience it. And it'll bring a whole new thing. Joe Rogan is really into. Mm-hmm. He has the luxury of going out, but he's been trying to feed all of his family with meat that he yeah, hunts like himself. Moose meat would be great. Far more nutritious. You know what you're getting in. Yeah. I think it's a luxury, but I think that point needs to be should be respected by a lot of people. It's a great point that that's actually mm-hmm. there's an argument to be made that that's coming from a place of far more respect yeah. and far more understanding than ignorance or hatred or anything else. I, as, as a litmus test on dates for the longest time I used to tell girls that you know I wanted to I wanted to get like a suckling pig fresh off the teat feed it walnuts and cream and apples and let it run around and have the most happy life the animal could have and then once it came time slaughter it and feed my closest friends using every part of the animal as just the ultimate show of respect and the, the girls that obviously didn't make the cover like that's terrible and it's like well you can't just return it back to pig life after you've right. shown it the best life you can show an animal and then celebrated it in every possible way so last year for my birthday my mom asked me what I wanted and I was like I want to come home and roast a whole pig so we went out to a friend's farm I pointed at the one that I wanted you know just little guy and uh I'm not really one for guns so uh, you know, the farmer took the shot, but, uh, you know, I remember sitting there with it, you know, on the tailgate of this truck before I was about to do all the knife work on it, just like, just petting it and like, you know, like trying to express to it, like, you are going to be, make so many people 
so happy. I mean, it's the end that it was going to come to in the first place. Mm-hmm. But for me to actually, having looked this animal in the eyes and then seconds later have it bleeding out on the tailgate of my mom's pickup truck, it became so much more special. And I sat out there in the snow uh, with my knife and I skinned this whole pig. Wow. And it was cold, so it was not... <laughs> It was not a good time. Yeah. You know, I had to cut the head off of an animal with a hacksaw. Cut the hooves off. Like, yeah. it's intense stuff. Like, you know, like, take, I mean, taking another animal's life is another thing. Or taking the life of anything in general is, you know, intense. But for me, this was done with so much more care than I've ever handled any piece of meat at any job I've ever cooked at. Knowing, like, this is for me and a select few people mm-hmm. and it's that same thing going back to the vegetables when you grow your own zucchini and you don't like it but you've watered it mm-hmm. yeah you've spent so much more effort in that it means so much more that yeah. it can't be anything else but that my own misshapen peppers you know <laughs> yeah. like yeah they're awesome I made those I don't care if they look shitty I made them yeah you go to the uh, I think another telling thing too is you go to Africa and the Bushmen and the Native Americans who tr- treat killing an animal it's it's a spiritual type of thing and that's because they're so close to their food and they're so active in the process and granted they're in small tribes so it's a lot different than the society we live in now in the western world but it's it's that it's in that human nature you know especially when the they're kind of discovering that we all came from africa anyways it's like there's your like proof, you know, like there's, there's like this, that's what we need to be paying attention to. You know, that's cause everything we're to have now it's lost. It's completely lost. And it is that great. Uh, I'm listening to you talk, thinking of that Louis CK bit a couple years ago. Oh my God, I think is the special and God comes down and talks to humans. And the, the dialogue is like, well, I gave you everything you needed. What are y'all doing? He's like, well, uh, you know, we wanted to go faster and like bacon. And he's like, no. And he's like, well, you know, in jobs, like, because we need money. And he's like, no, I gave you everything you needed, you fucking idiots. Yeah. Just walk around and pick it up off the ground and eat it. Yeah. And it's like, at times when I get stressed out and I've had an 80-hour week or something, and you're thinking like, man, fuck all this. I just want to toss in my hat. I'm going to go move to the country and I'm going to build a little farm and just take care of myself. And I've built these skills and I could almost get by. Maybe it's going to be really tough, but, you know... I just, the ideal dream, and I think a lot of people feel it, are just to, to grow your own food, to cultivate mm-hmm. it. But, um, man, that's way tough. And that's kind of a false idol at this point. Well, you have you have land here, though. And so, like, I think oh, yeah. humans are so adaptable, and especially in the society. Like, you're, I mean, you're an advantage from, from other people that have an apartment. Sure. And granted, people that have apartments, that mean, that's really no excuse. You can do hydroponics. You can do deck deck gardens I mean there's like so like the technology is there but the the constraint isn't space Dieter it's time for me true yeah and I don't I have just enough time so I I'm really diligent about building SIPs sub-irrigation planters which water from beneath the soil up and the soil wicks the water up and you avoid all that mildew all the pest infestation and you're watering basically once a month Mm -hmm. instead of once a day and it's a huge time time saver it cost about twice as much to build your raised beds. But yeah. after that, I'm telling you, my, my raised beds, I used to raise water them once a day, now it's once a month, and it yeah. lasts, and the plants are better. 
But I still, even with that being said, I still found myself struggling to find time to harvest and do basic maintenance Mm -hmm. and prune. Um, Because after five hours of work, if I'm lucky, sometimes six, the next day or two days is spent doing chores and then resting Mm -hmm. and then done. So I'm on basically like a once a month garden maintenance where I'll spend four or five hours in the garden maintaining it fucking around but that's the best I can do and Olga and I have talked about it and we're like what we have going on right now is still too much because we can't find enough time to maintain it the way it it deserves to be maintained so we're going to slowly restrict our planters and kind of just focus on that Um, so we've been talking about that and it's the older I get it's time that's fucking Mm -hmm. my shit up and not anything else I'm you know I've got space yeah for sure um and that's, that's the thing is if I didn't have this fucking job, then I could raise my own crops. But the part of the modern society, the unconscious contract we've all signed is that, well, I'll brew the beer and you'll make the food right? and you'll print the signs and together we all fulfill a need for one another and that's our economy. Mm-hmm. And it works well because we all specialize and we've all got 8 billion people to feed. That's very true. Um, so that's kind of what we have to do. We can't... You, you, and fucking try you know I spent, right. like, I fucking tried being survivor man and I lasted right. like until I had to take a shit I think it's great what you're doing too it's because you're sharing with friends you know and I think that's sort of on the base level it's it's potlucks mm-hmm. I mean it's it's doing that it's trading services they oh have, yeah bartering have, for sure yeah bartering stuff uh, like um that social network for neighborhoods now next door. I yeah, you guys are on it. We have that. We're on that. It's cool. I mean, that's that's amazing. I have people selling eggs and mm-hmm. all types of stuff. I get yeah. eggs from my dad's chicken coop on the east side. My mom has chickens in Marble Falls. Uh, my roommate just started a job with a, a compost company where they go to. He goes to different businesses. He gets free eggs. He. I mean, it's just like, it's this abundance. It's just going. It's basically bypassing the supermarket hitman. And and really narrowing it down to to locavore and bringing it back to your economy question or your point, it's like yeah, I mean it's like we have the power to do that. It's like you can do um, you can create dips. You know, Jeremy can create dips, and then you can create you can grow a bunch of uh, spinach or or something, and then I can you know I can grow peppers or mushrooms or something, and so. It's just, it's, it's like starting this web, but, you know, of course you have to s- start. You've heard small. about, like, I don't, I'm not sure what the name of it, but like cattle share, where a group of people, 10, 15 people together, buy an entire cattle. Right. And then oh, you get yeah. that divided, and you cut a meat, your selection's so much better, you've got to get that organization and a chest yeah. freezer. It's like, wow, what a great idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's take another short break, come back, wrap up everything we've talked about. Sound cool. good? Yeah. Cool.